Hi Secreters! Welcome back! So yesterday I talked a little bit about the Japanese hint book and we were looking at the hints in verse 1. Um, the first poem of the secret book. And we're figuring out some interesting things about that verse. Um, especially for the hints from Byron when he stated the strongest tower of delight. When we look at that and we see why would he put that particular quote in this poem, what is its meaning? So you have the lead uh, character in the book, which is Pierre and the Ambiguities. He's a Frenchman. He's living in New York City. He's from a wealthy aristocratic family and they've gained all of their money by basically the slaughtering of indigenous uh, people. Uh, it was termed Indians in the book because, you know, we're not as foolish to call them Indians, right? Uh, it says so even in the secret. So, you know, what do we gather from that particular quote? Frenchman living in New York, obviously you know, his family is super wealthy, and then he has some kind of ancestral affair with a person that he thinks is a friend, but then ultimately winds up becoming, like, his sister. It was number seven in the books of Herman Melville's publishing. The seventh book, he had a higher hope for this book after it literally came out the year after Moby Dick. He expected for it to be another great book. Right, just like Moby Dick, uh, which Moby Dick took a little time to, to take off as well. So in Herman Melville's mind, he's on this high cloud. I'm finally making some money. I am. I've written this book, and it's getting all this acclaim. And so then he's like, and I'm going to do this one now. It's going to be kind of like this weird kind of psychological, incestual, you know wrought with strife kind of uh, book to see how this is going to be perceived as well. You know, now am I, am I free enough as a writer? I can just write about all the different kinds of eccentricities that are going on in, you know, the 1800s at that time. And can I talk about it and see how it's received? So I look at this and I think, okay, is Byron trying to tell us something about French? Is he trying to tell us something about New York? Is he trying to give a hint about the fact that it was the seventh novel in Melville's series? And we know that he brings Melville into a couple of other poems um, in the book as well. And so, uh, you know, what, what are we to infer from that for this particular Verse. I know a lot of people are probably losing their minds at me yesterday because I was I said, you know, <laughs> this verse is for supposedly the understood, verified city is Houston. But, you know, could it be that we might have a couple of the poems mixed up? It's very possible. And so then I began to really look back on the actual verse itself and verse line by line. And it's ultra fascinating because when we think about these pictures that Palancar painted for the book and the gem that's associated with them, 
we kind of start beginning to see that there are double meanings in the paintings and in the gem. So when we read the first poem, Fortress North, cold as glass. So we pick up our dictionary like Byron says, right? Because y'all have done that. <laughs> how, many, how many dictionaries do you own now? I, I probably have quite a few. Um, but thanks to jstore.com, that also helps whenever you need to look up some things about the books. So Fortress North, he's telling us there is some kind of fortress to the north, right? And so we have to determine what is that fortress exactly. I mean, is it really a fort? Is it a fort that has been built by man for a company that's made it a fortress? Um, you know, are we talking about IBM? who controlled the mainframe computer at that time, which by the way, you know, IBM has a very, very long and nasty history as we've learned and will continue to learn in the secret book. Um, you know, what, what fortress is he indicating? Or is he indicating that the fortress to the north is actually another country? Okay, are we talking about Canada? I mean, could it be? I don't know. I mean, it just, this is where the interpretation can get really, really murky and where a lot of people fall on many different sides of the aisle as far as what it necessarily means. But one of the things that we have to remember too, uh, interestingly, with the Japanese hint book, there are multiple characters that mean multiple words. So, um, and they have different multiple meanings. So, when the Japanese interpreter is talking about how confusing that can be, um, <clears throat> I tend to kind of understand this. So I think, in my perception here, is we are going to pick up the dictionary and we are going to, not just any old dictionary, okay? We are going to pick up a dictionary from the era of 1979, 1980, 1981 publishing, okay? We need to look at an American dictionary. We need to look at the Webster dictionary. Webster before it became Merriam-Webster, right? When Noah Webster actually wrote the Dictionary, a Cambridge dictionary. You know, those are two of the largest English published dictionaries in the world, okay? But they're not published here, they're published in England. <laughs> so we have to really pay attention to the wording. So when we look at the next line, cold as glass, that is a phrase that could also mean water, could also mean you're looking out on the water. That is one of the things that I have found in some of the older dictionaries with meanings for glass, meanings for, in quotations, dictionary quotations for cold as glass. So the chances are from some of this older uh, definitions of these books, we could be actually looking at He's telling us to look north at the fortress over the water. So 
that's my interpretation, and it's up for debate. I don't have a cask, but uh, something that I really like to think about and to analyze. Because Byron loved to play with words, and he appeared to love to play jokes and practical satire uh, jokes with, with grammar. And so if we're cognizant of, and again, I always say, what would a Japanese reader do? They're going to pick up the dictionary and they're going to look for the literal meanings. Um, it says, take your task to the number 982. So, multitude of things there, right? Byron says, look at all the numbers in the puzzle. You know, they, they have correlations with the paintings, you know, and as we look through the book, for instance, the Handy Manicourt in the background, there's a little container of putty that says 222 on it. Well, could that be linking that one to a subsequent verse that says Lane 222? I tend to think so. I think these are the little hints that are painted along the way. And then he says, through the wood... No lion fears. Through the wood, no lion fears. So then we have a whole different meaning for through the wood. Is he talking about walking through a forested area? Walking through a line of trees to where this cast could be? Possibly. He says, no lion fears. This is an interesting line. When we think about lion, we also think about history and history of the lion. The first real African safari and lions that were actually shot and killed on safari were by our very own president, Teddy Roosevelt. And we know that he's in the book. <laughs> and we see that when Taft was going to take office, Roosevelt... At the time, the newspapers were publishing that he was going to be a puppet for Teddy Roosevelt. While Teddy Roosevelt was a great leader in many aspects, he was very flawed as well, and many, many others. And so a lot of the inference in, especially the Wooly Bully, is the insatiable need for... Teddy Roosevelt to be domineering, have his way. He was very quick to go, pardon my language, going to go kick some butt, kick some ass. Um, he was a very manly man and a hunter at that. So he decided to go on this African safari and shoot some lions. He wanted to get the biggest lion that he could get. And ship it back to Washington so that then it would be mounted and taxidermied for him and his property. It's currently in a museum in Washington, D.C. where it was on display for a while. They took it off display for 12 years. And now apparently in the last couple of years, they're going to try to bring it back and resalvage it. Point being, we have a lion inference here. And also the mistreatment of animals and or peoples. Just kind of like a thinly veiled thought, you know, just a theory. But then you also have, who else was considered a lion? President Jackson. 
Jackson was considered a lion. And he was a very successful military officer uh, that then became president, that then single-handedly wrote many, many indigenous people all over the United States and forced them into reservation concentration camp areas that became reservations. Uh, he was not a nice man. And so then you think, well, is he talking about a theoretical lion? Are we talking about someone who is nicknamed a lion? Or are we talking about an area where there actually are lions, mountain lions, in North America, you know, anywhere around where there could be these types of lions. So lots of different things to think about there. We know that he says, in the sky, the water veer. So apparently in this park area, given the Japanese notes, we're probably essentially looking for also some type of very large or some sort of fountain that sticks out, right? He says, small of scale, we'll talk about the smallest scale model in Japan, you know, and they talk about, it means if I'm talking about this pen, it's small of scale. So, you know, maybe is there a art exhibit that is actually a sculpture that is, you know, 15 foot by 35 foot high? Which, which scale are we talking about? So we have to think about that. We also say, it says here, you know, you step across perspective should not be lost. So are we stepping over a bridge? Are we crossing over a roadway to get to another portion of said park? What exactly are we stepping across and why should we not lose perspective? The perspective must not be lost has to do with the story he's trying to infer here. Um, and also to not lose heart, potentially, right? Don't get frustrated. Don't lose your perspective. You're almost there. That's the connotation. So, in the center of four of like. So, is that four statues? Is that four trees? Is that four cannons? Is that... In the center of four, like, are those four ideologies that are in that park based on people who have had their finger on it and building it and, and or possibly desecrating it? You know, what, what is the, in the center of four, like, small, comma, split, comma. If you look up the word split, it has different meanings. In the Merriam-Webster dictionary, there is one definition where it talks about the splitting of an atom, in, really in reference to nuclear fusion. So if we think about, are we really is he really telling us look for something small and split, something that has a crevice in it? Maybe. 
Is he trying to paint a broader picture of this park is around or has something to do with the crazy, like, connotation or inference of nuclear war and nuclear information and issues that he talks about in this book? Maybe. But we have to, like, at least consider it, right? We can't just think it's just this one way. We have to be able to have an open mind and think about what all the different meanings of these words actually could mean. Because a person visiting from Japan would look exactly at the definition and try to find the exact meaning. Because if they're learning English and they, they need to see a translation, it is going to have these definitions. They are going to have multiple meanings. The question is which one? What applies? So then it says three-winged and slight. This could have been, at that time, an inference of a type of tree with a type of leaf that is technically three-winged. Uh, palm trees are three-winged. There are certain types of, I want to say, beechwood or birch. I'll have to look that up to be sure. Was he implying it was a small tree that he planted it beside? I mean, was it another inference of something else? three-winged and slight. There were, there was a time in early aviation, which we know Byron talks about, hints about, Spirit of St. Louis, all of that, uh, that there was a three-winged small plane. You know, that's kind of interesting in aeronautical history when you're looking back at the various airplanes and or flying uh machinery that were that were being developed. And then he says, of course, what we take to be our strongest tower of delight, which we know that's from Pierre in the Ambiguities. We know that's a French guy he's talking about here in New York. <laughs> seventh book of Melville. Could that also be seventh painting? I don't know, but we have to kind of think about that, those things, right? Everything's on the table. It says, falls gently in December night. Falls gently in December night. So we do know that there's a particular type of tree that has leaves that do fall in December. And I also printed out an entire booklet on every possible event in December from the inception of whenever they started keeping time and started keeping track of, of events. And I'm going to post that so that you can look and also try to assimilate which thing he could potentially be talking about. Are we talking about John Lennon? 
tragically killed and fell on December night? Are we talking about bomb bombing of World War II in December? Are we talking about uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, who is French, right? Considered himself an emperor. Said, I'm going to be king. Okay. He took over. That's kind of mentioned somewhat in the book. And interestingly, um, what appears to be somewhat of a French revolutionary uniform where the Civil War uh, discussion is about the... Um, I have to look them up here. The Civil War lock. Like some of those photos, uh, while they show one thing, they actually have very many meanings in other ways. So when we go back and we think, hmm, in December night, Does that also mean the December painting? We have two poems in all of these 12 poems that mention December. One of them is French. Which one is it? I mean, based on some of the things we're reading here, it feels like poem one could be French. Um, why talk about a Frenchman in New York and quote one of those quotes from that book. So, looking back from treasure ground, and he doesn't say treasured, he says looking back from treasure ground. So you're standing where the treasure is, and there's the spout, so you can still see the fountain, wherever that fountain is, and a whistle sounds. What kind of whistle is that? Street whistle? Tugboat whistle? Paddleboat whistle? Whistle for the football field? I mean, these are things I feel that when we're looking at deciphering this book that we really have to think about. We really have to give some credit to the environment and the way that it felt. Um, what he was seeing and feeling and all of the sensory perception that he was having then, right? So, is the painting for Houston and is it this verse? I don't know. Could possibly be. I could be way off base. Somebody's going to dig up a cask and that's cool. <laughs> But at least we know some of the foundation of what these lines could potentially mean. I strongly encourage you to, if you can't afford to buy used books online and get some of these older copies of these dictionaries and maybe even find Byron's own dictionary, this guy right here. <laughs> Um, you should, because it really does give you a better perspective about 
and a better understanding um, of what he could have been thinking. And maybe, therefore, after hearing this, it may dawn on you and you may go, oh, man, I, I totally didn't think of this park or, you know, this place. You know, oh, maybe this actually is. Maybe the first poem is for Canada. Because, you know, quite frankly, when he starts out in the book, we start talking about the Nootka when we are talking about the tribes and he's saying reference to Jacques Cartier's landing. You know, is Byron trying to say, hey, y'all, first poem up north? <laughs> Don't know. Don't even know if he means it pointing to Canada from some other area. Niagara. Detroit, Detroit, which is also French, um, Milwaukee, also settled by the French, right? Then, but we also have St. Louis, Louisiana. We have some heavy French heritage around these parts, too. There are many, many, many thoughts about French, the French connection. When we think about the Boston painting and we see that it was an English-based painting with an Italian gem, we could potentially be in some other city, probably in Olmsted Park, but a different jewel connotation for the cask. So, I'm going to finish up Verse 1, because I had to talk about it, because I know some people are like, Karen, you're just totally crazy. You might be a crazy Karen, but wow, I didn't think of it like that. And that's the way I want you to think about these things. I want us to not follow the masses and just go by the presumed theories. I, I feel Byron would have wanted us to really know our grammar, really know our definitions, and world history and American history, both good and bad. So when you have the understanding of all of those things, that's what's going to lead us to the right place. And I believe it. It'll come eventually. So tomorrow... Verse 2, going to talk about that. Also, I'm going to post the December night fallings. And I'll let you take a look. It's going to be on the Facebook page. And you can kind of make some correlations yourself. So, yeah, have a good day. And I will talk to you soon. Cheerio on. Ferry on.